So our study in the book of Luke has now brought us to the very end of the book. And we find Jesus giving certain direction. It's like the last direction that he's going to give to his disciples in the book of Luke. Now, Matthew has some, the, the, the great commission, and that's the direction that he gives there. But here in the book of Luke, we get direction from Jesus right before he ascends up into heaven. And then we have a promise that just as he has left on the clouds, he is going to return on the clouds. He ascends into heaven where he stands or sits at the right hand of the Father. And the Bible tells us that he is ever making intercession for us. He is our mediator. He is our advocate. And I love that thought. Jesus is so on my side that he is mediating for me and advocating for me. He is so on your side that he is mediating for you and he is advocating for you. That's what's happening in our study today. Now, if you remember last week, Jesus had come alongside of two disciples on the Emmaus Road. He was incognito. He finally revealed himself to them. They ran back to the other disciples. This is the night that Jesus has resurrected from the dead. It's the evening of the morning of the resurrection. And they run in to tell the disciples he is alive. And they're cut off before they get there, before they can say that. And the other disciples say, he is risen indeed. And Peter has seen him. And so now there's been these appearances that have taken place. But they were, and, and while they're talking about that, Jesus appears in the middle of them and they are terrified. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. And he says a few things to them. And finally, he says, do you have any food? And they get him some post fish and he eats it in front of them, showing that he has a real body, that he is not spirit, but he's really there in front of them. Now think about this. They have all of the evidence that they need that Jesus has risen from the dead. They have an empty tomb. They have eyewitnesses who have seen him and they have Jesus right in front of them. He, they can reach out and actually touch him. So that's the evidence that they have. Now Jesus begins to give them final instructions. That's the title of our message. The final instructions of Jesus. Now this is again in the book of Luke. Chronologically, we get the great commission after this. Go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, uh, 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 baptizing them and teaching them to do the things that I have called you to do. Chronologically, it's after this. But these are the final words that we get from Jesus in the book of Luke. And so there's three things. Number one, he tells them, you guys should have known that these things were going to happen to me. He's talking about his arrest, his, 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 his passion, his crucifixion, his burial and his resurrection because they were foretold in scripture. He's gonna show them the evidence that they should have known. Number two, he's gonna talk to them about the work that they are called to do. That repentance and remission of sins is going to be preached to all nations, but it's gonna start in Jerusalem. Number three, he's gonna talk to them about the gift of the Holy Spirit, the empowering of the Holy Spirit to do the work that God has called us to do. Now, there's a lot of arguing about whether or not there's a baptism of the Holy Spirit or receiving the Holy Spirit or a second experience in the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit falling upon you. And I think that all of these arguments are silly, and I'm going to tell you why. The Bible teaches us two things about the Holy Spirit. 
Number one, the moment you are born again, the Holy Spirit is inside of you. It's so clear in Scripture that everyone believes that. From the Pentecostals all the way over to the Presbyterians. And you can't be any more different when it comes to your relationship with Christ than the Presbyterians or the Pentecostals. Except they both start with a P. That's it. That's the only thing you have between these two. And both of them believe that you are baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit enters you and you are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. Again, Baptist, Methodist, Lutheran, doesn't matter. Everyone believes that. But there are those who don't believe that you are empowered by the Spirit to do the work that God's called you to do. And to me, that's a tragedy. The Bible teaches us that God empowers you, not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. That's an Old Testament passage. It is by the Spirit of God that we want to do the things that God calls us to do. I, as a pastor, don't want to do the work that God's called me to do in the work of my flesh, by sheer willpower or by some talent that I might have. I want the Holy Spirit coming upon me, and I want there to be the work of the power of the Spirit taking place. And I want to show you before we're done that this is the teaching of scripture and that you don't need to be afraid of being empowered by the Holy Spirit we're not talking about getting more of the Spirit we're not talking about weird things that people shaking and falling on the ground and other we're not talking about that I'll address some of that as we make our way through all right so Jesus begins to talk to them first of all about the evidence in verse 44 then he said to them these words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. It was there for them all along. You can go back and read the books of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. And it speaks of Jesus. And we need to comprehend it. Sometimes we're not. He opened their understanding that they might comprehend it. That doesn't mean he did something, you know, ooh, you know, point at them, I'm opening your understanding now. I've heard people say things like that. No, he opened up their understanding. He began to share with them how those things in the book of Moses spoke to him, spoke of him. And also in the prophets and the Psalms. Now, the Old Testament is broken up between the law, that's the books of Moses, the prophets, major and minor prophets, and the wisdom books, which Psalm is one of them. Job, Psalms, Ecclesiastes, and another one that is in the Old Testament are the wisdom books. And Jesus is saying, these all spoke of me. Listen to what Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees about uh, the Old Testament. He said uh, the scribes and Pharisees believed they were trying to keep the, the law, keep the word of God to be right with him. Jesus says to them in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures for you think in them you have eternal life, but these are they that testify of me. The power of the Old Testament is that it speaks of the Messiah, gives us the prophecies of the Messiah, and point to Jesus. 
not the power to be able to live a life by, by the scriptures, but that it introduces us to the Messiah, that we have a relationship with him. Hebrews tells us this same thing. This is Hebrews 10, 57. This is a quote from the Old Testament that says, Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. This is fulfilled in Jesus. In the volume of the book it is written of me. So when you study the Old Testament and you look for Jesus, it is amazing how often you find him. There are those that have come up with the idea of a scarlet thread that goes through every book in the Old Testament that points to Christ all the way through it. It's even stronger than that. When you stop and you look at these three areas, Jesus said, he said again that all of these things were fulfilled in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms. So they were fulfilled by him in, in the law, on the law of Moses. That's the Pentateuch. How was Jesus fulfilled in the Pentateuch? Well, I can't go into a, I can't go back to all the passages and look at them all in the ways fulfilled. Otherwise, well, there would be a, a hundred study long uh, 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 series that we would have to cover. But let me give you just some ideas of how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. The book of Moses, first of all. First of all, you remember that in Genesis 3.15, it says, he will crush your head, but you shall bruise his heel. This is a prophecy of the crucifixion, that Jesus destroyed Satan at the cross by crushing his head, but he had his heel bruised and that he will carry those scars, it seems like to us, forever of the crucifixion. Jesus is the Passover lamb, the New Testament tells us. So when you go to Exodus and you read the very lengthy story of the delivery of the children of Israel out of slavery by the Passover lamb, which flew over, applied the blood to their house, and then they were freed from slavery, you and I were slaves to sin. Jesus is our Passover lamb. We apply the blood to our lives. Our sins are forgiven, and now we are set free. Jesus is the brass serpent that was lifted up in the wilderness, the Bible tells us. That people, when they were bit by a poisonous snake, could look at and live. We have been bitten by the poisonous snake of sin. And we look at Christ on the cross. And when we do, we find ourselves forgiven. All of the feasts in the books of Moses speak of Jesus. If you've ever done a study of the seven feasts that Israel has every year, you see they so clearly speak of Christ. In fact, the first four feasts were fulfilled by Jesus on the days that they happened. The, fe the feast of first fruits, the feast of, he died uh, during the feast of Passover as our Passover lamb. He died on that very day. He rose from the dead on the day of first fruits. And you see that they speak clearly of him. Abraham was told by God, go and sacrifice your son, your only son, on the mountain I will show you. And critics of the Bible say, what kind of God do you serve who would tell Abraham to go and, and kill his son? And then they'll point out that pagan worship during the days of Abraham sacrificed their children to him. And God even judged nations because they sacrificed their children. And then Moses is told to go and sacrifice his son. But what they don't point out is that in the very beginning of the chapter, it says God 
tested Abraham to take his son, his only son. Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael wasn't living with him, so technically it was, but God is doing something by saying, go and take your son, your only son. What's he doing? He's foreshadowing a father sacrificing his son. And he brings him to Mount Moriah, which is the Temple Mount. And on the foot of the Temple Mount, on the foot of Mount Moriah, Jesus was crucified. The father gave his sons for the sins of the world. And so he was foreshadowing it. God had said to Abraham, in Isaac, I'm going to bless all nations. A descendant of Isaac is going to bless all nations. And so Abraham, when God told him to do it, went to do it, believing that God was going to raise him from the dead. God has to be true to his word. He's going to raise him from the dead, which is a foreshadowing of Christ. As they're going up, Isaac says to his father, who's, by the way, 30 years old. So don't think of a five-year-old kid. Uh, he's 30 years old. He says, Dad, we got the wood. We've got the fire for the sacrifice. But where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God will provide himself a sacrifice. Literally said that way. God will provide himself a sacrifice. God became man and sacrificed on that exact same mountain. It all foreshadows Jesus. Now, so you don't think that he sacrificed his son. He pulls back the knife. God stops him. There's a ram caught in the thicket. He sacrifices him. And we have a beautiful picture of a father because of the sins of the world and wanting to know you, sacrificing Christ. And don't think of this as cosmic child abuse as these silly people want to say. This is Jesus rescuing mankind. It's like a man who sees a child on railroad tracks and can't get there and save the child. And all he can do is knock the child out of the way and take the full force of the train himself. And we would say of that man, he is a hero. And Jesus is a hero. He's our hero. He's my hero. He's your hero. Now we could go on and on looking at these Old Testament passages that foretell Jesus uh, from Moses. But let's move on to the prophets. Jesus said, the prophets also speak of me. It was told how he would be born through the prophets. It was told that he would be called Emmanuel through the prophets. We were told a child would be born to us. A son would be given to us. And his name would be called Mighty, a wonderful counselor, um, mighty God, everlasting father. We're told how he would live, what he would happen in his ministry in the prophets, how he would die in Isaiah 53 and Psalms 22, and that he would even rise from the dead. The prophets went into great detail. Let me give you an example. Zechariah 11, 12 through 13 says, Then I said to them, it is, uh, If it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out, uh, my wages, 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the princely pie price they paid of me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and I threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. This was fulfilled with Judas, who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, was hit with regret when he realized that Jesus was going to be killed, brought it back into the temple and threw it in the house of God. The, the religious leaders took the money and didn't want to put it into the, their, um, their coffers because it was blood money. They're willing to murder a man. They're willing to pay betrayal money. But let's not put this in the treasury because it's blood money. 
At least they had some line somewhere. And, and I, when we justify our own sin, we, we draw silly lines, by the way. This is a silly line. So they take the money and they buy a potter's field, which is what the text said. And the place Judas hung himself, they purchase as a place to bury people who can't afford to be buried. That's a potter's field. They're, they're buried there. Just exactly like the Old Testament said. And there is prophecy after prophecy given. In the book of Psalms, the same thing is true. Now, Psalms are not like the prophets. They're different. They're books of wisdom or they are books of poetry. And especially if you know Hebrew, sometimes in English it works. You, you get a Psalm and you go, wow, that really works well. But in Hebrew, it works even better. There are psalms that start, every verse starts with the letter of the alphabet. And there are a few of these psalms where if it was English, the first letter of, of a verse would be A, the next would be B, the next would be C, the next would be D. They had all different kinds of things they would do in the psalms and putting them together. But in the middle of it, it would speak of Jesus. Psalms 41.9, even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. A prophecy again about Judas. On the night he was arrested, he gave him bread and said, go do what you must do quickly. And he raised his heel against him. Psalms 45, 7. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. God calls the Messiah God. And in Hebrews chapter 1, it goes even further. It says, to the Son, he says, to the Son of God, he says, God, your God has anointed you. The Old Testament not only foretells the things that would happen to him, but who he was when he came. Now, I got a question for you. Why did Jesus go over the evidence with them of the fulfilled prophecies that they had been part of? When they had Jesus in front of them, why didn't he just go, you guys are silly that you think that I wouldn't rise from the dead. The Bible said it. Here I am. Look at me. I think he went over this for you and me, for people who don't have him. When Thomas saw Jesus and, and fell down and said, my Lord and my God, confessed him to be God, Jesus said, blessed are you, uh, Thomas, because flesh and blood, uh, he says, blessed are you, Thomas, because you've seen and believed, but blessed are those who do not see and yet they believe. That's you and me. Now, you are not asked to believe with no evidence. You're asked to look into the evidence and then make a reasonable step of faith. I'm not saying that you can get to 100% surety, although at times I feel that way. At times, some of you do feel that way. Some of you have such faith that you're like, I believe God, I know it's true. But we have ev reasonable evidence to say, Look, the Bible foretold the future. It foretold what would happen for Je to Jesus, and it happened to him. That's why God gave it to us. If you are having doubts in your Christianity, doubts are something that happened to Christians. If, it's, if you're a non-believer, if you don't believe. But in Christianity, there are doubts. What do you do if you doubt? We talked about this last week. You look at the evidence. It's time for you to go back and to see, are these things true? And I encouraged you to get a book by Lee Strobel, who was a journalist for the Chicago Tribune. Uh, he wrote a book called A Case for Faith. It goes over the basic principles of the evidence for Christianity. 
If you're struggling in doubts, that's a place to start. That may be enough for you. There's more places you can go, but that's a place to start. He went to disprove it because his wife got saved and he was annoyed. And he went and started interviewing people so that he could prove that the thing, he thought it was going to be so easy. Christianity is going to be so easy to disprove. And once he got into it, he became a Christian because the evidence was so strong. He's not the only one that that has happened to. So I'm saying Jesus gave us this so that we would know the evidence is there. Let's go take a look at it. Now, the second thing that he does is he gives them Luke's form of the Great Commission. Now, the Great Commission in Matthew is go out and make disciples of all nations. That's what we're to do. Uh, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all the things I've commanded. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. This is very different. Look at verse 47. He says, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. Jesus lets them know that you're going to go out and teach repentance and remission for sin. You're going to begin in Jerusalem and it's going to go to all nations. And so we think of this today. Here we are in Tucson and I don't know how far away Tucson, I don't know where the place is that is the farthest away from Jerusalem. I it probably did a little research, I could figure that out. But I got to think Tucson's pretty close. You can't get any farther away from Jerusalem than Tucson. If you can't, it's not much. And here we are, and, and, and repentance and remission of sins is being preached. Just as Jesus said it was going to be. 2,000 years ago. Now, repentance is when you stop living for yourself and you start living for God. That's repentance. When you realize, Lord, I don't want to live for myself anymore. I want to live for you. Jesus gave everyone an invitation. If you want to be my disciple, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. Now, what is denying yourself? It's when you say, I'm not living for me anymore. There was a time in my life where I lived for Robert Furrow. I was doing things for Robert Furrow, but now I'm doing things for God. The life I live, I live for him. That's what repentance is. I'm no longer living for me, for my own desires, for my own wants, but I'm now living for him. God had a plan. He had a purpose. He forgave my sins, filled me with the spirit, empowered me to go out and do the work that God called me to do. Some of you here may have committed your life to Christ, but haven't really repented. You're not living for Jesus. You've never denied yourself. You're still living for yourself. The real Christian walk is picking up your cross, denying yourself and following him, saying, I'm now going to live for you. And you will be transformed. God will do his transformative work. The second thing he says is the remission of sins. And this is an amazing thing. Remission, that your sins will be gone, that they're taken away, that God forgives every sin you have ever committed. In the book of Isaiah, it says, come now. This is Isaiah 118. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are as scarlet. What do you think he's trying to say by that? Though your sins are really bad, though they're like scarlet, I will make them, they shall be as white as snow. And though they are as red as crimson, I will make them like wool. Your sins are forgiven. The guilt, the shame is all taken away. 
Every once in a while, someone will say something to me along these lines. I don't think God can forgive me for my sins. Or, this is more common, I've I've sinned and I'm ashamed and I don't think God's going to forgive me again. I don't think he will. And my response is always the same. I say, do you think that his death on the cross, the nails being driven through his hand, his back being ripped open, the, the blood he shed for you hanging there for six hours and dying on the cross is not sufficient to cover what you did? I've never had anybody go, no, I don't think it is. You always go, yes, and more, right? He went through it all for all of us so that our sins could be forgiven. And no matter what you've done, and no matter how ashamed you are of it, and no matter how many times you've done it, your sin is forgiven when you receive Christ, when you ask him into your life and to forgive your sins. And it is very, very powerful. And we preach this all throughout all of the nations. I want to show you also that it's not by arrogance that you receive this forgiveness. Because every once in a while, I'll run into someone who will say to me, if God shows me, then I'll become a Christian. If God writes my, somebody tell me one time, if God writes my name in the heavens, then I'll believe. It's like, God's given you more evidence. A plane could write your name up in the sky. Maybe somebody hires a plane to write somebody's name up there. It just happens to be your name. God's done the impossible by telling the future. He's told the future in the Bible. And you won't believe that, but if somebody writes your name in heaven, then you'll believe. Instead of being arrogant, if God writes my name, I'll believe. Why don't you say, God, show me if you're real. Lord, I want to know. Approach him humbly. Listen to what Jesus said about how we're forgiven. This is Luke 18, 11 through 14. It's a parable. He says this, a Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. So he's, he's not even actually praying, he's praying to himself. And he says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. He was very religious. He was very faithful in his religion. He tithed, he gave, he did all these things. And the tax collector stood afar off and would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You will not come to Christ with arrogance and pride. Lord, I'm better than everyone, and here I am. I give myself to you. I know you've been waiting for me, and here I am. No, you call out to him and ask that he would forgive you of your sins. Now, the third thing that Jesus talked about, so we've had him talk about the evidence of the Old Testament that he would have to suffer and die and experience these things. We've talked about the message of the gospel that repentance and remission is going to be preached from Jerusalem to all of the nations. But now he talks about the power of the Holy Spirit, that you are going to be empowered to do the work that God's called you to do. And in my introduction, I made the point that everybody believes you receive the Holy Spirit when you are born again. Every church teaches that. It's so clear. Bible says we are baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit, 
Well, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is inside of you. Ephesians says we are sealed by the Holy Spirit when we believe. The Holy Spirit seals us. Got a seal was a, you would put a seal on a letter, wax, and then your signet ring showing this letter's from me. And so you have the seal of God on you that you are his, that you belong to him the moment you are born again. But then they argue over the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible, Jesus promises empowering and never says it's going to go away. Now, I realize that I watched a video the other day uh, that somebody had, had put together of people in, in, in Pentecostal charismatic churches who believe in the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And they were shaking and they were jerking and they were falling on the ground. And, they were, and then they would show Hindu people doing the same thing. Then they went back to these, these charismatic churches doing it. Then they went to, to New Age people doing it. And they showed the same things. Now, here's the fallacy of that video. They take the worst of people that teach that you can be empowered by the Spirit. And they compare it to the worst of what happens in Hindu and the New Age movement. And so when you watch it, you go, yeah, <laughs> I'm staying away from that. But it's a fallacy because that doesn't happen in most Pentecostal churches. It doesn't happen in most charismatic churches. They're taking the extreme. And I even wonder, I'm not judging them, but I even wonder if these people are saved that are doing these kind of things. It's so self-centered and not empowered to do the work that God's called you to do. Don't reject the empowering of God to do the work he's called you to do by some silly things people do running around barking in their services. If you go to a church service and people start running around and barking, leave. You can be pretty sure that's not the place that you want to be. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't want to empower you with the Holy Spirit. So listen to what Jesus says. This is verse 48. And you are my witnesses to these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power on high. In Acts 1.8, we'll get to this here pretty soon. In Acts 1.8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. You're going to receive power to be a witness. What is the power that he gives you? Why does he give you the gifts of the Spirit? So you can be empowered to shine as a light for him. In Samaria, remember the woman at the well that, got, that uh, Jesus ministered to? He told her, you've had five husbands and the man you're living with now is not your husband. That, that woman, she's a Samaritan. And Samaritans were part Jewish and part Assyrian. When the Assyrians took over Israel... They planted Assyrian people in Samaria, the capital of Israel, and the Jews intermingled with the Assyrians and became their own people group called the Samaritans. And the Jews didn't like the Samaritans and the Samaritans didn't like the Jews. There's racism going on in Israel. Well, now the gospel goes to Samaria and they get saved. That's what you read in Acts 8. And in verse 12, it says, and Philip went to preach there. He was a deacon. Philip was the one who preached it. In verse 12, it says, and when they believed, this is the Samaritans, Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. 
They heard the gospel, they believed, and they were baptized. The Holy Spirit had moved inside of them. But then it says in verse 14, now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, this kind of amazes them, Samaria's received the word of God. Then Peter and John, they sent Peter and John to them, and when they had come to them, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had yet, he had, uh, for as yet, he had, let me read this right, for as yet he had fallen upon none of them. Acts 1.8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit falls upon you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. They were saved, the Holy Spirit was in them, but he had yet fallen upon any of them. It goes on to say, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. This little reference, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, makes us think that they might have been talking about the empowering of the Spirit as being baptized in the Spirit. Most good, solid Bible teachers will say, the Bible never says you're baptized in the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't in the positive sense. But right here, it seems to infer to it. They've only been baptized in John, or, or baptized in water, in the name of the Lord Jesus. And it says, thus they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. All I'm saying is that there is an empowering of the Spirit. It's not a, it's not a one-time thing. It's a continual thing. We're going to see this as we get into the book of Acts. Peter is, is, the Holy Spirit comes upon him in Acts 2, comes upon him in Acts 4, comes upon him later on. It's a constant empowering to do the work that God has called us to do. It's not a way for us to show off or crow like a rooster or do the things that the extreme people do. We don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. We want the empowering of the Spirit. We don't want their weirdness. Right? We're not going to be weird when we're empowered by the Holy Spirit. We want the power of the Spirit in our lives. Now let's read the Ascension really quick. Uh, we'll cover it more in the book of Acts. Verse 50 says, And when he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted his, up his hands and blessed them, now it came to pass, while he was with them, and while he had parted from them, he departed from them and carried, was, let me, read, let me read it again, all right, without butchering it. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass, while he blessed them, that he was parted from them and carried them into heaven. Acts tells us he was enveloped in clouds. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and we're continuing in the temple, praising God. Amen. He closes out the book. Now again, we'll cover the ascension more in the book of Acts. But listen to these three things in closing. Number one, we do not have blind faith. There is the evidence of the Old Testament. And you can be sure of what you believe. It's one of the reasons that we're putting on an apologetics conference this year. So that you can know what the Bible says and give an answer to the faith that is within you. Number two, we have a calling. We are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. We've been entrusted with the gospel. We've been given the keys to the kingdom. We've been promised the gates of hell will not prevail against us. And number three, we have the power of the Holy Spirit to help us accomplish that. That everywhere you go and you're doing the work of the ministry. In the book of Ephesians, it says the job of a pastor is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. 
That's what I do, is equip you to do the work God's called you to do. You are to plant seeds. You're to water those seeds. Sometimes people try to get you to kick open doors. In my own personal sharing Christ, I never kick a door open. Paul talked about a shut door and an open door. He, the door had been shut for him to go to Asia, but it was open for him to go to Europe. I look for God to open doors in my life to share with people. As God opens those doors, be bold, be filled with the Spirit who will empower you to be a witness wherever you go. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that we find these final words of Jesus and they're so powerful here in the book of Luke. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would help us, that we would be able to be filled with the power of the Spirit. Lord, we're not afraid of it because some people do weird things. We know that you empower us to do the work that you have called us to do. And we ask you now to fill us with your Spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.